Well, we are, um, we're, we're kind of not at the end, but we're at a place that we started journeying towards in terms of through the Scriptures back in June. Actually, June 30th. We looked at the end of Luke chapter 9 where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and begins this journey. And I preached then a sermon. Do you remember that one? <laughs> well, the title of the sermon was Follow Me. And that's what we've been seeking to do. This is what a disciple is. This is what it means to be a Christian, is to follow Jesus. To take the path He took. To seek to become and grow like Him. To live like He lived. And here we have Jesus in His destination in Jerusalem. And it's a somber, it's a horrific moment. Because despite all that He'd done, despite the miracles that we read of throughout the Gospel of Luke, particularly the early part, his teaching, the compassion that he showed for all actually, especially though the crowds, the prophetic warnings that he gave, the love that he expressed. Here, he stands condemned unjustly, stripped, beaten, whipped within an inch of his life and crucified, nailed to a wooden cross, dying an excruciating death, unbelievably horrific, and the first words of his we read are, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is our God. If we're not awestruck by this, this was not expected. <clears throat> Some of you may be familiar with The Crown, a Netflix series about the British monarchy. And... Um, the new series has just kind of been released, so Carol and I have been watching some of that. And we were sharing on Wednesday. It was an interesting episode towards the end of the 60s where there was a terrible disaster in Wales, in a small community, Aberfan, where uh, basically a, a, a coal mountain, uh, because of the heavy rains, um, broke apart and slid down the valley and into this community. And, and, and really the first thing that it hit was a primary school. And over 100 children were killed. 144 people of a small community lost their lives that day. It was a terrible, terrible time. I was about nine or ten years old. And as it plays out, Queen Elizabeth resists the invitation to go. And she makes an interesting comment. She says, monarchs go to hospitals. They don't go to disasters. In fact, she waited eight days before she eventually visited and she came to say later it was the biggest regret of her monarchy. When she did go, she struggled to, to cry. It said that she actually dabbed her face with a handkerchief, but she actually struggled to express emotion. Jesus, our King, was the disaster. He was the Holocaust. He wept over the people he came to save and who resisted not just his message, but his very personhood. I don't know what people in Canada are like with the monarchy. I know we share a common kind of heritage and um, somewhat of an identity. I know in the U.S. they're not that keen. They celebrate that fact every July 4th. Interestingly, Israel always wanted a king. God was insufficient. You see, there's a, there's a desire in many of us to have somebody look after us, to rule over us, to provide for us, to protect us. And though Samuel, if you read about this back in 1 Samuel, particularly chapter 8, Samuel warned them what it would mean because God showed him what it would mean to have a king. 
He'd take their sons and daughters, their crops, their donkeys, their money, and eventually the people would cry out for deliverance from them. But nevertheless, God gave them what they asked for because he was insufficient. We live in a day when many people believe that Jesus the King is insufficient. And they look for something physical and material now. We've not learned. So I want to just um, do actually something we did on Wednesday, and I want to just consider him. To begin with that reality, to look to the one who was beaten and torn for our sin. This King, this King Jesus is God's Son and Saviour. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the greatest crimes today, I believe, is people's indifference towards the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We don't care about it. We don't care much about him. We think we know better. Calvary may have been the end of his earthly life, but as we've sung and celebrated, it wasn't the end. But also Calvary was not a surprise even to Jesus. It was a choice that he embraced for you and for me. He embraced this suffering. It was the Father and his plan all along. So much so that we go back in to that first chapter we started in, back in June, Luke chapter 9. The Son of Man, he said, must suffer many things. Son of Man is a title that he often used of himself. It meant the Son of God. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It was a choice, not a surprise. And he prophesied, and we read in, in John's Gospel, that when he would be lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. Because for John, the cross was glory. It was the place of greatest glory because it was the place of greatest surrender to the will of the Father and the manifestation of the power of God. Because as well as not a surprise, it was not the end. Jesus was raised by the Father. The power of God. The God who brought all things into creation, who spoke a word. Let there be light, and there was light. He brought order out of chaos. He brings life out of death. And Paul puts it like this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the cross was not defeat. The cross was victory. The cross was overcoming. The very powers that held us and still hold us to some measure and shape the ways of our world too much. It's through the cross that we are set free to know God, to love God, to serve God, to be free from our selfish ways and our self-centeredness. How does it happen? don't know totally, but I know it's the love of God that changes us. And if we look, if we have eyes to see, and if we have a heart that is willing to consider and look to Jesus and consider Him, we will see Him any, everywhere and anywhere. He's there in creation. He's there in the stories we tell ourselves through books and films. 
He's there in our families. He's there in the craving of every human heart. Do we have eyes to see? Will we take some time? And what better time is there than approaching Advent and Christmas to consider Him? So many other things that take our time and attention. And that's just getting worse and worse. And there's little or no time to stop and consider Him. And yet, He's our King. He's the King of creation. He's the crucified King. He's the lover of our souls. But considering Him is not enough. We've got to respond to Him. And we've got to respond not just with our minds, but with our hearts relationally. It was an interesting... We watched another episode last night, and it was an episode based around Prince Philip, the Queen's husband. And... um, the Queen had appointed a new dean as kind of the local church in, um, in the grounds of their, her property. And uh, he comes to Philip to ask if he can use one of these empty buildings for a place of rest and refreshment uh, for, for church leaders who are worn out, tired out, lost vision, to stir something, to, re- to experience some renewal. And, um, and Philip just berates him. In fact, he's invited by this, this man uh, to come and meet with the first people who stayed there. And he sits in a circle and he, and he just dismisses them out of hand. At the, at the same time, men have just landed on the moon and he's captivated by this. He sees this as this wondrous achievement of men and he's so eager to meet these astronauts that when they do their tour and actually come to the palace, he, he requests time alone with them. And he was a pilot. And he is utterly, utterly disappointed by them. You see, he had built them up to be these demigods, these men who had achieved the impossible. They had landed on the moon and stepped. What a wondrous achievement. These must be extraordinary individuals. But they're just men. They're just like him. And they were more fascinated in him and the place he lived than what they'd done. And it rocked his world. So much so that he comes back to the circle where he basically stood and just dismissed them out of hand. And he was a broken man. And he said he was terrified to come. And he said, I need your help. And it's actually a beautiful moment. Because it's it's in picture of our needed response to the King we call Jesus. To come with brokenness and to ask for help. You see, people came, but they weren't looking for help around the cross. In Psalm 22, probably written up to a thousand years before his death, the psalmist wrote, All those who see me ridicule me. They shout out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. This was no surprise. It was known in eternity past. And it was predicted and prophesied and it happened. Have we got time to stop and wonder and respond and open our hearts? You see, those who felt they had enough, the religious leaders, they were in a position of power. And sometimes religion can keep us as far from God as anything. The soldiers were no different. After all, they were the conquerors. But no, they weren't. 
They were as enslaved as all the rest of us. The criminal, even dying on the cross beside him, mocked him. Is there a more ironic or sad situation that we can be facing the Lord of glory in the next moment and we're willing to dismiss him in our arrogance? This is how lost we are. This is how needy we are of a saviour in our self-belief. And what's ironic about all three of the, the parties that mocked him, that the, the message was, save yourself. You see, that's all we can think about is ourselves. And this God who poured out his life, of we sung that we would do the same, came to seek and save us, not himself. He was willing to lose his life, that we would find life. Does this touch your heart? Does this change you? Does this draw you? Because ultimately his trust was not in men or even in himself, but in the Father. And even though he'd lost sight of the Father and the cry of dereliction, which again comes from the same psalm, his last words are words of entrusting, into your hands I commit my spirit, Father. Could you do the same? And many today sadly look at both Christ and Christianity and the church and sometimes maybe it's due, but we look, they look with the same disdain, the same blindness, the same arrogance. But none of us is worth this. This is not based upon our worthiness. It's all God's goodness and all God's grace. And not, nowhere do we see that more pronounced perhaps than in the second criminal who does respond and turn to him and owns his wrongdoing and recognizing his sinfulness, his brokenness, his godlessness, but turns to receive mercy and promise and restoration. Not only the promise of paradise, but the promise of relationship. For Jesus says, you will be with me. This is what Jesus yearns for, that we would be with him. For he loves us so much. And this is the invitation still. Do you want to be with Him? Do you want to be in relationship to Him? In union? In fellowship? Through repentance and faith? Can you imagine getting married and going through all of that ceremony? Spending all of that money? <laughs> dancing the night away? And then choosing not to live with your bride or groom? Not to consummate the marriage? Not to enjoy the blessings of life together, but to live separate lives. Some of you know what that feels like. You see, marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. God isn't interested just in the ceremony. It's all about the life, the connection, the relationship, the walking together, the listening to one another, the hearing of each other's hearts. This is the greatest gift we've been given because this is life as God designed us for. So we've got to respond relationally, but then we've got to be changed. Oh, people, we have to be changed. We cannot continue as we once were. And He will do that for us if we surrender, if we yield. Now, for this criminal, he was about to die. His very first steps with the Lord are going to be in glory, in eternity, in paradise. Sometimes we wish that could be the way. 
Some people want to say, well, I'll wait until I'm nearly dead. Then I'll consider becoming a Christian. But now let's have life. Let's enjoy life. Let's make the most of life. But that life may be taken from you. And what makes you think your heart will be ready or open or willing? Would you spurn this great God and his offer of love? You see, life, eternal life, is now. It begins this side of the grave for those who would respond and receive and be changed. Now, this is eternal life, Jesus says in John, that they know you. This is the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Not living forever, but being with Him, becoming like Him, receiving from Him. And that's how we're changed, receiving from Him. Responding to His love, His power, His revelation, His Spirit in us. And we receive abundantly grace. We sang of that. Truth. Because we live lies. And we're controlled by them. King Jesus, crucified with a crown of thorns. His own blood running down His face. Down His back from the beatings. Down His arms and legs from the nails driven through them. It's His blood that cleanses us. You've been bought at a price. Jesus, John writes in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There's no one like Him. He who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. By His blood. Have you received His absolution? Because He wants to declare not guilty. Finished. The price has been paid. He wants you to walk in that forgiveness for that shame to be gone. It's rooted in the lies that have been broken through truth and grace that has been given to us. Because not only has He removed the stain of sin, but He's given to us righteousness, goodness, belonging, freedom. Paul puts it like this, He, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. Your sin, your rebellion, your selfishness, your waywardness, your arrogance and mine was put on Him somehow. He took it. He took it as we nailed Him to a cross and He responded not in kind, not with expletive, expletive and condemnation as most would do as they were nailed to a cross because that's the human response. But this is the God-man. This is your Saviour. This is your King. So that in Him we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. There's a life to be lived now. It's eternal life as children of God. Sons and daughters restored to the household of God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near to the Lord, to one another, Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall is gone. There's no need to live with hostility. But we've got to learn to live this new life. It's a kingdom life. It's lived by obedience to the King, by receiving from the King. We can't continue as we once were. Many of you know I'm actually a US citizen. 
but I was born in Britain and still hold UK citizenship. And I'm loving being in Canada, part of the Commonwealth. But at times it gets confusing. And when we moved to Austin, Carol and I, we, um, you kind of want to connect with your own people, don't you? And we actually led a British expat group in Austin. You know, where we church planning, with all great chance to meet people and connect. We would have events every month where we Brits just got together and talked Brit. You know, we just did our thing and felt at home. And, you know, we're drawn to that which is familiar. But there comes a time, you see, where you've got to assimilate, you've got to become a part, you've got to become an American. Which is not to lose our distinctiveness, but we've got to bring it into alignment. I think that's some of what Canada is about as well. We've got to value our distinctives, but we've got to recognize we're now a new identity under a different authority. This is what the kingdom of God is like. We come with all our distinctives, with all our different preferences, but now we're under one king. He's Jesus. And our lives are to be brought into alignment so that we live in, rel- in relationship and fellowship, not just with him, but with one another, as redeemed sinners, gifted with life for the sake of the world, not just ourselves. And so finally, when we do that, the more that we give ourselves to that, the more that we will bless, please, and glorify Him. came up on Wednesday as we reflected on this, that there's a struggle to believe, can I bless God? He, he blesses me. Don't you realize you get to bless the Lord? You get to affect Him in the realm of the affections. That's what it, that's what it means. We've got a smile on His face. Without faith, we can't please God. You mean I get to please God? Isn't God self-sufficient? Isn't he the all-sufficient one? He doesn't need me. Well, no, of course he doesn't need you. But love reaches out and opens itself too. You may think you don't need most of the people in this room, but love says, no, I open myself to you. I give myself because actually I need you more than I realize and you need me. This is love. And if we operate in our silos, we're, A, we're not like God. But we're living those self-reliant, prideful lives again. You see, this is why we have to be changed. This is why we have to receive something of the Spirit of God. But this is what is given. As it was given to Jesus of Nazareth, so it's given to us. In order that we might give it back to Him. And bless Him. And please Him. And glorify Him. And more than anything, we get it by the manner in which we respond to the Father's Son, Jesus. You know what it's like when... Your kids are out in the world and they're playing and they bring someone home and you kind of like their friends. You're happy for your kids to be with this child. And then you know sometimes where your kids go out and connect with kids and you think, I'm not too happy about that. That's a bad influence. Don't want them in the house. Where do we get that from? We get that from the father. He wants our kids to be in a place of good influence. That's why the psalmist says, don't stand in the seat of mockers. What is your influence? But who is in the house? The invitation is to come and be welcomed in the house together. And when we do, we get to give back to God, to bring Him pleasure and to bring glory to His name. You know, when the, when the centurion, it's not in our reading, it's but just after our reading we read, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, Surely, this was a righteous man. He saw it. 
And he considered him. And he responded to him. And in doing so, he brought glory to God through his response to Jesus. You get the same. When you reflect the life of Jesus in whatever context you are, you bring glory to God. When you suffer for his name, when you're generous beyond what you have, when you love those who are unlovely, when you forgive those who don't deserve it, you are most like your Father in heaven and you bring pleasure to his name. And we get to do that by his grace. It's all grace. It's all gift. Jesus died that we might live in him and live for him by growing into his likeness. And we do that when we make him king. It doesn't matter how we feel about monarchies. He's a king because he lives and expresses a kingdom. And if we want the blessings of the kingdom, we can't have that without the king. As much as we would love it. And when we remove ourselves from the throne of our own lives, we're in trouble. This is where the old uh, country music song Jesus, take the wheel. Oh, you're not from Texas, are you? Anyway, I got surrounded by a lot of country music when I was in Texas, and I remember that one. And this is, this is what our baptism means. You know, in some Anglican churches, when you walk in, there's a baptistry at the back. It's not just so that when someone gets baptized, we don't all shuffle to the back of the church. It's that every time we walk into worship, we're reminded of our baptism. We're reminded of the gift of God. We're reminded we're here by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We're reminded of the one who died for us and whose blood washed us clean. And we're reminded that we're children of God, righteous, good, holy. Well, we should be. Because in baptism, we are baptized into His death upon the cross. Our life is buried with Him, Paul says, so that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. We may live a new life. This is our worship. These are the worshippers that the Father seeks. Who are, we just can't get over a sense of gratitude for what has been given to us. That it changes us. We're ruined for what was the ordinary life because we've discovered something glorious. It's the pearl of great price for the which the merchant sells everything that he has, a wealthy man, that I may have this one thing. And I spend the rest of my life in adoration and worship that God would love me like this and give me all of himself. And what can I bring in return but myself? And that's all he asks. And he'll run a mile to you. But you've got to come. You've got to turn. You've got to be joined with him. You've got to be changed by him. And you're invited in doing so to bring him blessing. And that's what I want us to do more than anything in this community. It's put a smile on the face of our Father. And somehow for Jesus to become more radiant, more glorious, more visible, more evident. Because he's in us. And the power of sin is broken. The victory of the cross becomes my victory. Your victory. The accusation, the lies, the shame are gone. Though my sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, the prophet says. So that I may walk in this newness of life. It's supernatural. And it's all gift. And it's glorious. 
So will we, start, will we stand far off and remain apart? Or will we walk ever nearer and take hold of that for which God took hold of us? That's the adventure. That's the call. That's the gift. Let's stand and um, invite the Holy Spirit to continue His work. The work which He began and will bring to completion. Remember Jesus, the author, the beginner and the finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. He started it and He will do it for He is faithful. He is faithful.